Hey, I am really, really glad you're joining us this weekend. I'm Dan, and I happen to be one of the pastors here, and I love the fact you're joining us. If you're a mom, this is Mother's Day weekend, happy Mother's Day to you. Hopefully, uh, those around you and your family are treating you and honoring you, but I just want to say to you, happy Mother's Day. And I want to take a minute and say this, too. Uh, uh, We kind of have an online little community going on, and I've heard from some of you, and I want you to know that we're praying for you. Uh, I love the fact you're listening. Uh, some, Some different people have emailed. I know some of you listen as you take a walk. Just love hearing those stories. Some of you in Virginia Beach uh, or the Virginia Beach area watching. Um, got an email from from a gal down in the Atlanta area, and love the fact you can kind of stay connected in that way. We love you guys and are praying for you, and so thankful we get to do this together. Thanks for joining us. Bible's open to John 15. We're going to finish a series today. Uh, the series is Jesus is. And I've been taking a look at the I am statements of Jesus, seven of them in the book of John, where Jesus says, I am. Today, we want to kind of finish that up and start a whole new series next week on the Spirit is. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So hopefully you'll check that out. I was thinking as I was uh, engaging in the passage I'm going to be looking at today of the fact that I got an A in woodshop. Seventh grade woodshop, had to take it. I got an A in, I might got an A plus in woodshop. And uh, man, oh man, I, I was incredible in the woodshop class. But, but, if, but if you knew me, you would know something, that if you want something made for you out of wood, I am not your guy. I am not your first call. <laughs> I'm probably not even your 10th call. Like I, I'm just not good at working with wood and things like that. But I got an A in woodshop. And you're saying, well, how in the world you get an A in woodshop if you can't do things with wood? Here's the deal. The motto is fake it till you... Make it. I knew how to study for a test, right? I knew how to do all the requirements. I could fake it until I made it. I did that in college, even grad school, right? I took a Hebrew class. I remember every day I would go in there and you'd have to be able to read out of the original Hebrew Bible. And man, I would bone up and memorize it in case he called on me. And I would just fake it till I make it. That's what I would do. I got an A in the class. But if you said, well, you fluent in Hebrew? No, I can use the tools, right? Fake it till you make it. Anybody, you ever hear that term? Fake it till you make it? I guess one thing when you talk about wood shop. Some of you guys got through school that way. Now, that's one thing when I talk about Hebrew class, but that's an entirely different thing when we're talking about life. That's an entirely different story when we're talking about the way many people, maybe you, live life. We just fake it, finish it with me, till we make it. The fact is, uh, there are many people who would call themselves Christians that are faking it till they're making it, looking the part of a good Christian, but not really knowing Christ. That might be you. Uh, people who are decorating their lives with morality, decorating their lives with information, decorating their lives with conservative ideologies and opinions, but never really, their life never really experiences the real joy of knowing Jesus, never experiences and extends the, the love that comes from knowing and loving and following Jesus. Uh, fake it till you make it Christians who never experience and live in the power of the Holy Spirit that comes through Christ. People who would say they're Christians who can pass the test when it comes to Bible trivia, they can pass the test on all things Christianity, but not really knowing Jesus. Jesus shared this like sobering in, in Matthew 7, sobering thing. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Bam. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. That's impressive, right? 
in your name. We perform many miracles. You gotta be kidding me, in your name. But he says, man, this passage is just, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws, he says. The fact of the matter is, fake it till you make it, Christians who look the part, even busy doing uh, incredible things in the name of Christianity, in the name of God, and yet they're fake it till they make it Christians. Maybe you're one. People who've never experienced the real joy, the real power, the real love of knowing Jesus. You got your Bibles open to John 15, and if you took your Bible and just grabbed chapter 13 to chapter 17, this is a uh, very intense conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, and then John 17 is him praying. In John 13, he's in the upper room with them. That's where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, this, this moment where the disciples are like, what's going on here? Uh, it was in that upper room moment, John 13, that he says, y'all are clean, but not all of you. One of you is going to betray me. That was Judas. Is in John 13 where he looks at Peter and says, hey, pretty soon they're going to come and take me away and you're going to deny you ever knew me. And Peter's like, not me, no way, not going to happen, right? And then he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, your love for each other is how they're going to know you belong to me. And then John 14, which JC did a great job last week, is where he says, listen, I am God who pitched my tent among you, but I'm going to pre prepare a permanent place for you. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, what we're going to start talking about next week. And he's going to be your counselor, your comforter. And here we are Thursday night before the cross. And at the end of chapter 14, it says, come now, let us leave. Apparently they left the upper room. And, and many who I've read on this would say, and they're on their way to the garden where Jesus is going to pray this agonizing prayer. But on the way, they very likely passed the vineyard, and maybe that's the setting for what we're going to read. Or maybe they passed the temple, and there would have been some sculptures of this uh, right at the temple gates, and maybe that's where they're at when Jesus says what we're going to read that he says next. But John 15, you got your Bibles there? Let's go here. Let's do it, because this is a powerful passage of Scripture. John 15, here's what it says. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Y'all are already clean. He said that in John 13. But this time he didn't say, though, not every one of you. Judas is not with them at this point. Important to remember that. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain or abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the, say it with me, vine. And you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away, withers, those branches are picked up, they're thrown into the fire, they're burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then he says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. What's interesting about this is Jesus says very plainly, I am the vine. You are the branches. That is the seventh I am statement of Jesus. And regardless of whether they were standing beside a vineyard when he said it, beside the, the temple, I can tell you this, that that metaphor, 
would have popped for the 11 disciples. They would have been very familiar with this metaphor. And the reason they would have been familiar with it is because they would have been familiar with the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. Look really quickly with me. I want you to see this. In Isaiah 5, here's what it says. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared of stones, planted with best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower. And he carved a wine press in the near rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? I expected sweet grapes. Why did my vineyard then give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll tear it down. It'll be destroyed. I'll break down its walls and let the animals trampled. I'll make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I'll command the clouds to drop no rain on it. Look at this. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's army. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden, and he expected a crop of justice. But instead, he found oppression. He expected to find the fruit of righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Stay with me on this. The vineyard is God's people, Israel. And his disciples would have known this. They were part of the vineyard Isaiah is talking about. And God expected certain fruit from his vineyard, namely the fruit of justice and righteousness. But instead, they were producing oppression and violence. And so this imagery of the vine that he's using was used over and over again in the Old Testament for God to describe his people. And it was a picture of a failed vineyard. So Jesus comes onto the scene into the middle of a group of people who are connected to this failed, fake it till you make it vineyard. And he says, I am the true vine. He steps into that failed fruit-bearing vineyard of the Jewish people, and he says, I am the vine. In fact, he says, I am the true vine. All you guys were meant to be and couldn't be, I am. All you guys were meant to and supposed to produce and have not produced, I am. I am the true vine. Now listen to me, lean in. And Jesus steps into this moment, whether you're walking, whether you're listening in your car, sitting and having a cup of coffee, wherever you're watching this, wherever you're listening to this, he steps into our fake it till you make it religion, our fake it till you make it failed religion, brand of Christianity that reduces following Christ to being just busy spiritual activity that reduces Christianity to church attendance and an adherence to a moral code or the embracing of conservative opinions. And that's a failed vineyard that somehow thinks that if I just become more religious, have a conservative ideology, that I will produce what God desires of me. And instead, what it produces, religion, what it produces is simply this. It produces anger and pride and power and spiritual elitism, apathy, division, and emptiness. And Jesus steps into our moment, our 21st century American moment. And he says, all those things you're connecting to, all those things that identify you, all those things that you're passionate about, 
They're not producing what God desires to produce because I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. You are the branches. And the gardener is interested in lots of good fruit. And the vine is the only way to produce that fruit. And you are a branch that either produces fruit or is thrown in the fire, is what he says. That's the point of the passage. Producing fruit is what this passage is entirely about. That's what he's saying. He's saying that my father wants fruit. He wants you to produce fruit. Jesus is saying, true disciples, don't fake it till you make it. True disciples, don't fake it till you make it, but true disciples live fruit-filled lives. They produce lots of good fruit. They produce lots of lasting fruit because they are connected to Jesus. There's three things in this passage. First one is this that I want you to write down. True disciples are genuinely and vitally connected to Jesus. Write it down. True disciples are vitally, genuinely connected to Jesus. It is the fruit of my life. It is the fruit of your life that will point to whether you or I are genuinely and vitally connected to the vine, to Jesus. Here's what he says. He says this, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Then he says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. What's it say? Showing, say it with me, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The branch, listen close, the branch, so important you get this, the branch produces fruit because it has the source of life in it provided by the vine that it's connected to. You do not produce fruit to become connected to Jesus. Your spiritual activity, your conservative ideology, your religious moral adherence is not what connects you to Jesus. But your connection to Jesus is what produces fruit. It is fundamentally important for you to understand this. The Christian life is not about decorating your life in order to connect to God. But it is about connecting to God through Christ. And that's what produces fruit in your life. I've used this illustration many times here at our campus. This might be new to you if you're listening for the first time. But it's the difference between decorating a Christmas tree. What do you do with a Christmas tree? You go out, if you have a live tree, you cut it down. It, be, it is dying. It is not, it is dying. It eventually will die. But what we do at Christmas time is we bring it in for a season for a, for a short amount of time. And we decorate it. And we ooh and we all, and it's incredible. But eventually, eventually, it wears out. Eventually, the needles start falling off. Ever had that happen, right? Eventually, if somebody in May still has their Christmas tree up, God forbid, right? It's like, man, that thing, now we're not ooing and all. We're like, ooh, cringe factor, right? You see, it's the difference. Many people live their Christian life this way, decorating their life, the outside of their life, with all kinds of things that they hope impresses people. What Jesus is saying, that's not a true disciple, 
That's not what it means to be a true disciple. But a true disciple is connected to Christ. And being connected to Christ bears fruit. My decorations don't impress God. Write that down somewhere. My decorations don't, they they never will. In fact, in one place in Isaiah, he says, my righteous acts or my righteous decorations that I decorate my life with are like filthy rags. Imagine decorating your Christmas tree with filthy rags. That's what he says. Such an important distinction. There are many of us who have lived all of our Christian life trying to decorate our life instead of producing fruit. We've turned this whole Christian life into a mechanical process of decorating our lives with morality and goodness and tons of activity that we hope impress God and even others. And we've missed out on experiencing the organic, life-giving, power-filling, joy-filled transformation that happens when we connect to Jesus, when we cultivate a relationship with Jesus, the true vine. Just think about, why do we decorate our lives? Why is that our tendency? Come on, we can be honest. Why do we do it? You do it, I've done it, we do it. Well, I can think of a bunch of reasons. Let's just state two out loud. My pride will cause me to do that. I want others to be impressed with my spirituality. I'm gonna be the best and most committed Christian you've ever seen, right? I'm gonna get involved, I'm gonna impress God, I'm gonna impress my family, I'm gonna impress my friends. Like, man, he's really, they're really involved, right? My pride can, can, can cause me to decorate my life. How about fear? How about fear? I'm afraid that I won't be approved by God, that he won't be okay with me, that he won't accept me. I'm afraid my family will reject me. Here's the problem with decorating your life. It doesn't last. That kind of brand of Christianity, which is not what a true disciple is, it's not true Christianity, it's not the true gospel, it doesn't last. It's temporary. There's nothing uglier than a live Christmas tree that is still in your living room in the month of May decorated. No one is ooing and awing over it. Now it's cringe factor. It's temporary. And you know what else it is? When you approach Christianity this way, the gospel this way, it's exhausting because you are more concerned about image And some of us are exhausted trying to hold up our Christian decorations with dead branches. Some of us have been doing it for a long time. I can usually tell, right? Because you're just exhausted. Jesus says the only way to produce fruit is to be connected to him. And when I'm connected to him, I'm focusing on the other end of the branch. You see, when I'm decorating my life, I'm focusing on what I do. When I am connecting to Jesus, I focus on what he did. When I'm decorating my life, my identity is wrapped up in all my activity and all the the things that I've accomplished. When I'm connected to Jesus, my identity rests in Jesus. I I heard this pastor tell this story, it's fascinating, that our identity is hidden in Christ. That's what it means to connect to Jesus. This guy was a pastor and his dad was a pastor. And he was talking about when he was 16, he was, he was a, a rebel. Uh, and, and his dad was the chaplain at the local police station. Been for 30 some years. So the 16-year-old would, you know, got his driver's license and he liked to go fast. And so he already had racked up some speeding tickets and he already kind of was on shaky ground. 
Well, his dad was beloved at the police station, and as a chaplain, they gave him all kinds of gear, T-shirts, stuff like that. But he actually got a badge, this this lanyard, a thing that he wore that with, with, you could tuck stuff in there. But in there, behind that laminated little pouch, was a badge and his identification. But he'd leave that thing laying on the counter. Well, one day, his 16-year-old son, the guy that was telling the story that I heard, saw that. And he realized his dad didn't take it with him very much. And so he thought that thing would be really useful in my car. And so what he did was he took his license that identified him. The 16-year-old hot-rodden guy who already had a record of reckless driving. And he tucked that in that laminated pouch behind his dad's badge. Sure enough. Wasn't long till he put that in his glove compartment. He's out driving around and all of a sudden he sees the blue lights come on, the red and blue lights, and they pull him over. And they ask for his license and registration. He reached in that glove compartment. Now stay with me on this. And he handed them that pouch. And that police officer looked at that and he said, well, how do you know? And he mentioned the, the guy's name, his dad's name. How do you know him? Well, he's my dad. All of a sudden, the police officer said, he's your dad? He said, he's the most amazing man I have ever known. He led me to Jesus a few weeks ago. And he looked at the son who was speeding grossly over the, the, the speed limit. And he says to him, I want you to go. Have a good day. You have an incredible father. And please watch your speed. It did something for that man. One, his identity was hidden behind his father's. He, his father's identity is what that man saw. He's like, on the basis of the fact that your identity is couched, hidden in him, I am. You see, that's what it means to be connected to Christ. My identity is hidden in him. He is the perfect one. He is the one who came and was perfect. And I place my faith and trust in him. I'm hidden in his identity. My identity is, I won't know who I am till I know whose I am. See, the reason I decorate my life is I don't know who I am. And so I'm trying to make a case for me. But when I connect to Jesus, now I know whose I am. But how in the world do we do that? How do we connect to Jesus? Well, 1 John, different John, right? 1 John, right? Towards the end of your Bible. says this, by this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we seen and testify that the Father sent His Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Here's what he's saying. Connecting or abiding with Jesus is first and foremost acknowledging, believing that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. That he is the bread of life that was broken to satisfy the only one who can satisfy the spiritual hunger inside of you and I. That he is the light of the world that was crucified in utter darkness so that you and I could be rescued from the dark dungeon of our guilt and shame and sin. And he's the only one who can lead us into the light of life. That he is the good shepherd. 
and that he is the good shepherd who willingly, voluntarily laid down his life for the good of the sheep. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And here in John 15, he is the true vine who was perfect, and yet he was cut down for all of us who are not perfect, who are not producing good fruit. And he was cut down so that we could be connected. You see, connecting to Jesus is saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to what he did, not having everybody look at what I did, saying yes to who he is, not having everybody impressed with who I am. It's placing my trust in him as my savior. It's placing my faith in him as my Lord. It's hiding. My identity is now in him. I'm wrapped in his righteousness because he took my sin. That's what it means to connect. Well, what's the good fruit that you and I produce? Well, there's a bunch of places. Can I rattle off some? I'll throw some on the screen and you ought to write these down. Philippians 1 says, may you always be filled, there's our word, with the fruit of your salvation. What is it? The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. And then he says this, you know how you know it's real genuine fruit? This will bring much glory and praise to God. You see, I usually can tell when I'm around somebody who's decorating their life because they want to impress me with their spiritual resume. All the things they can do or are qualified to do, know the things about the Bible they know. And that when somebody comes and that becomes what they throw to me, right? I want you to be impressed with me. Well, what he's saying here is the fruit of righteous character that is produced from my connection with Jesus. And when that fruit is produced, He's the one who gets the glory. Uh, There's another passage, you probably are familiar with it. It actually is the passage that's going to be the content of our summer series. I hope you'll track with us all summer long. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. In an age of selfishness, (laughs) it's joy. I heard a guy say this one time. He says, I am convinced that the answer to all of my prayers is we need more fruit of the Spirit. Well, look at this list. The fruit of the Spirit is love in this age when people are selfish. It's, it's joy when it seems like everybody has despair. It's peace when anxiety kind of is a, an epidemic. It's forbearance. It's kindness in a very harsh culture. It's goodness. It's faithfulness in a world where there's compromise. It's gentleness in a world that is very rough. It's self-controlled in a world that's all about self-expression and self-fulfillment. You see, what he's saying is this, when you connect to Jesus, your character, your conduct become like Christ. He says here in Romans 1 that even part of the fruit of being connected to to Christ is our witness that points to him. And when people come to Christ, they become part of that fruit. In Colossians, he says this, that it is the good works bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, that our conduct resembles the life of the vine. The fruit of my life is what gives evidence that I'm connected to the vine. And I gotta ask myself, I want you to, please don't just scurf, am I connected to the vine? Am I producing fruit? Is it a genuine connection? Have I ever genuinely and vitally repented, connected to Jesus as the only source of life? Now look what he says. He says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. We'll come back to that. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. We'll come back to that as well. 
so that it will be even more fruitful. But we, we had to throw this up here as verse two because chances are you're asking a question. What does this mean? Does this mean I can lose my salvation? I'm gonna tell you this, I don't think that's what that means. I think Jesus made it abundantly clear in two places that we are safe and secure in our salvation. He says, all those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Verse 39, all this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all who he has given me, but raise them up the last day. John 10, when he's talking about being the shepherd, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So what is he saying then when he says that he's gonna cut off every branch in me that bears no fruit? Put yourself back in the story. Remember, he had 12 guys following him around, but in John 15, there's only 11. All 12 looked the part. Yet one of them, at the moment he's teaching this in John 15, is gathering an army of soldiers to arrest Jesus. His name is Judas. And I think this is a picture of people like Judas who appear to be connected. They're superficially connected to Jesus. Their lives are decorated, but they're not vitally and genuinely connected. They profess to be a Christian, but they're not connected. They spend their lives decorating their life with religious activity, moral accomplishments, but have never connected to Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, King of their life. My decorations are not how I connect to God, but my fruit is evidence that I'm connected to God through Christ. Decorations focus on what I do. Fruit focuses on what Jesus did. This is so important because I think in our country right now, in evangelical Christianity, whatever that means right now, there are so many people who are approaching Christianity, the gospel, the Bible, as though it's about decorating my life. I was reading uh, on this and one author stated, I believe him, say it this way, movements of God start when the founder knows Jesus deeper and movements die when the people only know the founders of the movement. What's he saying there? He's saying there's many people in churches and maybe you're one that, that they connect to maybe a church, they connect to a program, they connect to a personality, to an author, to an event, to an experience. They're, they're superficially connected to things that are Christian. Even if you connect here, it's like maybe your connection, like, man, I just love uh, Grace Church or whatever it might be. That's not the same as being connected to the vine. That's the only life-giving connection. Now, there's something else I just want to really quickly show you. If you have John 15 open, you ought to circle every time he says, remain in me, or maybe abide in your Bible. He says, remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. I'm the vine, verse five. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Verse six, if you do not remain, you're like a branch thrown away, withers. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish. But I think what's interesting is what he says next. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. 
If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, he says, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I love that. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Isn't that fascinating? He says, you're friends. You're my friends. You ever think of Jesus this way? If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. But he says this, instead, I called you friends. For everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. What is he saying here? Jesus is redefining our relationship with him. He says, you are no longer my servants, my slaves, but you are my friends. That true disciples produce fruit. How? By cultivating a deepening and a real and a genuine and intimate friendship with Jesus. He says, you're my friends. How does that happen? Friendship with Jesus starts by recognizing and receiving his invitation of friendship, his invitation of love. This is why this is so important. Many of you think that friendship with Jesus and relationship with Jesus is the result of you bearing fruit. If I bear fruit, if I decorate my life, if then I'll earn friendship status. That's the way it was in middle school, high school, right? You wanted these people to be your friend. You kind of had to earn a right in the circle. And so that we, we just adopt that with God. You think that if you obey God, then he'll love you. Jesus wants them to know he, he, his love for them is so great. His love for you is so great. Whoever you are listening, wherever you're listening is, his love for you is so great. His pursuit of you, so passionate that what Jesus is saying here is that he is literally dying to be your friend. You ever think of Jesus that way? He says a friend lays down his life for his friends and in a few hours, that's exactly what Jesus was gonna do for them. And that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus is the king who died for his servants. And then he goes beyond that. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lay down my life and I'm letting you in on my father's business, on his plans. Jesus is the king who lets us in on his business, his plans, and his affections are so stirred that he says, I chose, look here in the screen, I chose you. I want you to be my friends. It's a friendship. It was his love for us that caused him to give his life. And that's why when he says remain, the Greek word is meno, he's saying abide. It means this, to live in this enduring personal communion with God. Literally, here's what it means. Make your home with Jesus. Set up your home with Jesus. And friendship responds to his love. I, I, I think this word abide is so important. I hear so many people that are Christians say this, I spent my time with God this morning. Or I hope I have time, I can have my time with God. And that, I think what we're talking about there is our set aside, intentional devotion, or reading the Bible, praying, and that is great. Find the time when you do that morning, maybe it's night for some of you. But the truth is this, when he says abide or remain, it is recognizing his constant presence, that he's with us. He's here right now. As I'm preaching this sermon, 
People say, is it hard to preach in a room where all by yourself? I'm never alone preaching my sermon. I'm never alone. You're with me virtually. He's with me literally. He's here. So when I respond to his sacrificial and including love, you know what happens? It shows up in obedience. The more I recognize how much he loves me, the more I'm blown away by his choice of me, the more I see what, that he's letting me in, the more I respond to this relationship. And my affections are stirred. And I respond to this love with a love that obeys. If you love me, he says, you'll obey me. I don't think he's like, prove it. Like he's like, if you love me, if you abide with me, if you remain in me, the more that I love the more my affections for Jesus are stirred, and the more my affections for Jesus are stirred, the more fruit I'll bear. Stay with me on What is it that it stirs your affections for Jesus? I spent a weekend, a few weekends ago with my wife. It was her birthday. And we went into this cabin where uh, it's, it's remote and we just wanted to hang out together and be together. And as we're spending this, this time together, uh, I, we were with each other 24-7 for three days, three nights. And I remember, I just love the fact that we got to enjoy that together. And it was, we cooked together, we played games together, we sat sometimes in silence and read books together, we uh, watched a movie together, uh, we'd take walks together, we, but, but it was 24-7, three days, three nights. It was like with my best friend on this planet. And there's something about that that just stirs your faith. Like we're, it was just a breath of fresh air for us. See, I think what he's saying is Jesus' presence is constantly with us. And he's saying, make your home with him, abide with him, talk to him, listen to him. For some of you, it's, it's like it, it, maybe it's disciplining yourself to go sit uh, daily in a place of quiet where your mind can be fixed on him, live in a constant reminder of his love for you. You see, what stirs your affections for Jesus? There's a church in the book of Revelation that uh, the writer talks to, and uh, basically it's God through the writer talking to him. He says, you have lost your first love. You know, I worry sometimes that, that maybe some of us who would say we started with Christ and we loved Christ, that somewhere along the way, he became a part of our life, not a constant presence in our life. My wife is not just a part of my life. We're one. There's communion. We've made our home with each other. He says, abide in me. Remain in me. Make your home with me. What stirs your affections? Maybe another question is, what distracts your affections from Jesus? What's stealing your affection from Jesus? Because friendship with Jesus, cultivating that friendship with Jesus, results in fruit. I don't bear fruit to get the response. I don't bear fruit in order that he'll be my friend. I bear fruit that is a result of my deepening friendship with Jesus. What happens at that point? What pops out? What's the fruit that pops out? Well, two in that particular passage showed up to me. I told you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Do you know, you know one of the fruits of deepening your relationship with Jesus, your friendship with Jesus? A resilient joy in a world 
that is anxious, in a world that is stressed out, in a world that is frustrated. It's a resilient joy in his unchanging love. It's a resilient joy in the fact that I have a relationship with Jesus and he loves me. And I have hope and I have purpose and I know whose I am. Is this res- you ever meet somebody that had a resilient joy? You know when you're with them. It's this resilient joy that no matter what's happening, circumstances, this joy can't be touched. I don't think it's just that, but I think he says, my command is love each other as I have loved you. I think the other fruit that pops out when I'm abiding is this freedom to love. I'm now free to love. When you are decorating your life, trying to impress God and others, you are not free to love because most of even the good activities you're doing is so that it has a selfish motive, so that people will look at your life and see how it's decorated, so that God will be impressed that you helped that person. You see, here's what he's saying. Decorations are self-serving. Fruit is selfless giving. I love that. True disciples produce fruit by cultivating a genuine, intimate, deepening friendship with Jesus. Like that's what he's calling us to. You know what he says? He says he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that it will bear even more fruit. You ever see a vineyard uh, that was being pruned? We did our best to try to find. I mean, it looks like an absolute disaster. I have a raspberry patch, and my wife and I, every uh, one time, we'll just prune that thing. Right now, it's, it's, it's been pruned, and it just looks like that thing will never give life to anything. But we have found that what happens is, if we will take the time to prune it, it produces more fruit. But in the process, we take the, the old dead stuff, and we make a big... I had the biggest bonfire ever a few weeks ago because we had pruned some different places there at our house, and so we just had this incredible bonfire. The point is this, what Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. All of us, some of you are in it right now, all of us go through painful, cutting times in our life. Pruning times. Pruning times in our life that have a way of exposing what the source of our life is. The cutting times in our life will expose the source of our life. If our life source is Jesus, when cutting times come, it draws us deeper into the branch, into the vine. Tim Keller has a great quote worth stopping this and writing this down. True disciples respond to the pruning of the Father by producing more and better fruit. That's not Tim Keller's quote, but he has this quote that, that, that I think about. He says, true disciples respond to the pruning of the Father by producing more and better fruit. Keller says this, and I love it. He says, the pruner of the vine never cuts anything that is not a loss to keep and a gain to lose. Sometimes the pruner cuts off good fruit to produce even better fruit. Sometimes he cuts off a little fruit to produce more fruit. All of us will face cutting times in our life, painful times, and those times will either draw us deeper into the vine or they'll expose that he was never the source of our life in the first place. I've been pastoring for almost 30 years, and I have watched people come into my office with desperate disappointment, and some run far from God. They give up on God. 
throw their hands up in disgust and anger to God, want nothing to do with God, while others are going through the same deep, cutting, painful time, and it draws them deeper into their source of life. Their pain pushes them to the vine. Their cutting experience turns them to the source of life, and eventually more fruit is produced in their life than they would even have ever thought of. You see, one it cut away, the other it cuts off. The difference is, was it connected or just decorated? Sometimes the cutting away is our loving Father disciplining us. Hebrews 12 says He loves us so much that He'll discipline us because He loves us as sons. He's a dad who disciplines his kids. But it's not always discipline. Sometimes pruning is just because we live in a hard and painful and cutting world. And he told his disciples this. He said, it won't always be easy. But I think the point of what he's saying is that when those times of pruning come, that is where the fruit begins to grow. Uh, Billy Graham, I, I have this different places in my office. And mountaintops, he says, are for views and inspiration. But fruit is grown in the valleys. God will use the cutting times in our life when we're connected to Jesus to produce more and better fruit because when the pruning happens, the vine, people who know more about this, they draw, they draw deeper into the life source. That, that, like when there's cutting, I gotta draw here. That's why I'm driven here. I'm driven to be, I, I'll tell you all the time when you're going through a hard time, start praying. Be honest in your prayers, but, but God would rather you run into him in your pain than run away from him. All this begs the question, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Are you vitally, genuinely connected to Jesus? Or are you faking it till you make it? Passing the test, everybody around you like, man. He says, I am the true vine. Does my life make much of God? Am I producing the fruit of Jesus in my life? Can I ask you this? Have you made your home with him? Are you developing a deep and intimate, genuine friendship with Jesus? Some of you are going through a cutting time right now. I know that for a fact. I know the stories of some of you listening. Some of you are in a battle. We've been praying for you. And that battle for the follower of Christ is something that pushes us deeper into the vine so that he might produce more and better fruit in my life. Some of the most precious fruit that's ever been produced from my life has come as the result of some really hard experiences that I've gone through. I've wrestled with God. I've struggled into God. And he produced fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He says this, everyone who remains in me and I in them, they'll bear fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. Father, I pray, I pray for those who might be listening who've never connected to Jesus, that they would say yes to Jesus. That they would say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord this moment. They'd say, I believe you died for me, that you love me, and I'm giving my heart and life to you this moment. God, I pray for a lot of Christians that have lost their first love. Somehow they stop making their home with Jesus, abiding in Jesus, that they would begin today cultivating, developing a deepening friendship with the Jesus who is present. And I know some of my friends listening are going through cutting times. And I pray, God, 
in the middle of the tough, in the middle of the hard, that they would lean into Jesus and that you would produce more and better fruit that would free us to have a resilient joy, that would free us to love others the way you loved us. I pray this in Jesus' name.